patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everybody and welcome to episode 56 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Before we get started, I would like to take a quick moment to commemorate the nearly 3,000 Americans whom we lost a little more than 20 years ago on September 11, 2001. Two days ago, we commemorated 20 years since that tragic day. And I would like all of you to join me in this brief moment of silence for the Americans we lost on that day. Thank you. I am very excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Brent Zarnick. Dr. Zarnick is an associate professor in the Department of Space Power at the U.S. Air Force Air Command and Staff College at Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. There, he teaches military theory and space power strategy to U.S. Space Force and sister service mid-career officers. He developed and founded the Shriver Space Scholars, the premier space-centric year-long professional military education program in the world. He is also a Lieutenant Colonel Space Operations Officer in the Air Force Reserve, serving as the Director of Operations for the 310th Operations Support Squadron, 310th Space Wing, Shriver Space Force Base in Colorado. A founder of the Blue Water School of Space Power, Dr. Zarnick has authored three books and over a dozen articles on space topics. He holds a master's degree in space systems engineering and doctorates in economic development and military strategy. I'm really, really excited about this topic, too, because I think it's a great add-on to our first episode about uh, Space Force and Space Power Theory last November. I'll be sure to link that episode in the show notes below. But let's welcome our guest today. Dr. Zarnick, thank you so much for joining us on Friends and Fellow Citizens. Well, hey, thanks for having me. This is uh, quite an honor, and it's uh, always fun to talk uh, with people about uh, space strategy and space theory. So uh, I appreciate the invite. Fantastic. Well, let's get right into a bit about your background and really how you got interested in the fields in which you're working in right now. Can you just give us a sense of how you got interested in space power theory and eventually into the, the, the Space Force and additional research on these particular topics? Well, uh, you know, I'm like a lot of, uh, you know, American children, I suppose. We, uh, we really enjoy space. Always wanted to be an astronaut. I guess my uh, my mom said that my first word was moon rather than mom or dad. Who knows whether that's true or not. But, uh, you know, I eventually went to the Air Force Academy hoping to be um, an astronaut, you know, uh, pilot, fighter pilot, test pilot, astronaut. Uh, but when I was there, I found out that um, I really enjoyed uh, military history and military theory. And instead of going to uh, pilot training, I decided to go into the uh, space and missile career field, uh, which at that time was in the, uh, they were discussing the first attempt at an independent space force, or at least uh, 
a space core in the U.S. Air Force around 2001. I got commissioned in 2003. And, um, you know, I just thought that my future should be in space rather than uh, than flying. And uh, while I was there, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, I was, uh, I got a degree in space systems uh, or, you know, in astronautical engineering, uh, mostly because the Air Force told me I had to if I was wanting to be, you know, a space operations officer. Uh, and then found out that uh, I couldn't get an engineering degree and be an operations officer. So I had to switch my, my major, uh, still technical, but um, found out I really enjoyed reading uh, military theory. Uh, you know, um, Billy Mitchell, uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan, the sea power theorist who's impacted me a lot, B.H. Uh, Liddell Hart and other things like that, and wanted to apply that to space from a very young age. And uh, I suppose uh, as soon as I started my career, I did satellite operations, um, active duty, and then went into the reserve where I was able to work uh, at Spaceport America as a civilian for a while, developing the, uh, the commercial spaceport there. And uh, thankfully, only 15 years late, we actually had a human space flight out of uh, southern New Mexico, which was awesome to see finally. Um, but uh, it just sort of happened that I wanted to be, uh, you know, a military historian uh, and a military theorist. Uh, but I was in, you know, I was put in the engineering side of space operations. And uh, uh, about midway through my career, the Air Force uh, allowed me to go to Air Command and Staff College and then follow on to the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies, where I could sort of become the historian I always wanted to be. And, uh, you know, that was in 2015, and I've never left. So it's uh, really exciting to, uh, to be around when we have an actual Space Force now and to try to argue and uh, debate on how we should, as a nation, approach our, uh, our space activities. Because for people that don't really know a whole lot about space, uh, space power theory and anything like that, there are, it's a very, very old debate uh, that is not very well known anywhere. But uh, to me, it's extraordinarily exciting, um, exciting and frustrating at the same time to uh, to see things play out in real time. And uh, it's just it's always fun for me to talk uh, about it. So, again, um, thanks for having me. Not a problem. Well, that's fantastic. That's gosh, that, you must be doing so much right now. And, you know, you're right in the thick of this military history. And can you just share with us a bit about. What is it about history that excites you? You know, the, the the subject itself, delving into the past and to inform the present and the future. What is it about history that keeps you going and keeps you motivated all the time? Well, I think some people are just sort of naturally drawn to the subject. Um, and I always have. It was from my grandfather who uh, sort of taught me an appreciation of military history and World War II and such. But uh, really, as you get older, you start to realize that uh, very little about what happens in contemporary, you know, like modern day society uh, is actually new. Uh, you know, maybe the particulars are a little bit different, but uh, most of the things that we're confronted with, uh, similar things have been confronted, uh, have confronted people in the past. So, uh, you know, when history is vicarious experience that, you know, you didn't have to get yourself, I tend to believe that. And uh, that's why I reason a lot uh, with analogy and uh, specifically sea power analogies for uh, space power, because uh, they overlap about 90 to 95 percent, especially in the strategic arena, uh, which is very unchanging compared to, you know, technology and other things and military tactical kind of stuff. So uh, history is uh, imperative to understand. 
in order to make, in my uh, opinion, the correct decisions uh, today. So it's a very practical thing uh, for me, even though it's, you know, it's more fun for me, too, than reading maybe a, uh, you know, a math textbook or an engineering uh, paper, although I do read those on occasion. But history is very important and always will be. Absolutely. And this is this show is really a lot about taking history, learning the lessons from that, applying to today, meaning that even though we were not alive at whatever time period in the past, may necessarily, uh, maybe we were maybe uh, obviously a lot younger in the past, but we can always learn something from that time period or from that particular event. I want to now get into the space power theory and really just um, get a firm understanding of what it is and also, I'd like to ask you a bit about, you know, in the introduction, I mentioned Blue Water School. Um, could you explain to us space power theory, but also really how Blue Water School of space power really ties in with this concept and with the issues that are facing us today in space? Well, sure. Now, space power theory is interesting in that people have talked about space uh, for a long time and what it might be possible to do there. Um and, uh, you know, from the very beginning of the space age and a good deal longer with science fiction and, and stuff like that. But uh, really, space power theory is all about trying to figure out uh, how humans, uh, you know, states, nations, companies, whatever, uh, how best we should operate in space to maximize whatever advantage we're trying to get out of operating in space. How do we act? Uh, what do we do? Um, what kind of things are important? Uh, you know, what can space do for us? Where is the best location to put our dollars uh, for maximum advantage and all that? And in that sense, space power theory is analogous and uh, into sort of a subset of other types of, you know, uh, uh, theories that we have uh, for different environments. Uh, you know, land is the only uh, environment or domain in military terms that uh, human beings can live on. Uh, you know, um, for sea or air or cyber or space, we need technologies. And uh, most most often, if we're not on land, uh, the environment will kill us very fast without technological help. So uh, space power theory um, is about trying to figure out how best to operate in space through studying uh, how humans have interacted with, um, you know, our environments in the past. Uh you know, we're not the, uh, you know, we might be the first generation to really confront space in a huge way, um, you know, us and, you know, the people 50 years before us. But, uh, you know, space isn't a mature domain. We don't have a lot of people there. We don't really understand everything that's happening or what can happen there. What's the realm of possibilities? But we can see how humans and Europeans uh, have expanded across oceans and, um, you know, built nations and colonies and empires, uh, you know, in the non-pejorative sense, but just really expanding uh, to uh, to sort of master the Earth, you know, as a planet. And uh, space power theory, to me, is really how we apply those lessons to uh, a new frontier. And Americans are good at frontiers. If anything, uh, differentiates Americans from everyone else on, you know, the other nations of the world, it would probably be our relationship to, um, to the frontiers. Uh, I'm from the West, you know, uh, so I understand, you know, a lot of the old West and stuff like that. Um, 
And it's just uh, exciting to try to apply the lessons of our forefathers to today. Um, but when you talk about blue water versus brown water, uh, that would be the two, I would argue, the two big, um, uh, the two big schools of, of space power thought right now. Uh, it really comes from a, a Navy perspective. That's where those terms come from, in that a brown water Navy is a Navy that operates with the Army, you know, uh, near the shore. Uh, there are patrol boats, there are riverine gunboats, there are canoes, there are very small, uh, you know, navies that really don't have a lot of uh, experience or, you know, uh, capability or even interest in going out to the deep water and finding what's out there. Uh, the analogy to space power is, um, you know, people that think the ultimate value of space is satellites and, uh, you know, robots pointed down to make sure that Earth gets communications and intelligence and pictures and, you know, GPS and all of that's very important. But the Brownwater School, and I would argue that the Space Force currently as it stands in the Air Force for its entire history has looked at space as only what it can do to help the ground, you know, with ground, you know, the people on the ground first and foremost, and they're sort of uh, short, shorter term issues. Uh, contrast that to the Blue Water School, where a Blue Water Navy is a Navy that has very little interest in operating on the coast of its own, uh, you know, coastline. It goes out into the Blue Water. It goes out with, you know, aircraft carriers and battleships and destroyers and merchant ships, which is a huge part that we have forgotten about in uh, in the joint culture of the U.S. military today, you know, uh, they go out there and make money and bring resources and information and ideas back from across the ocean to enrich uh, their society back home. Uh, and they can project power from their coast to a foreign coast if necessary. Uh, they don't see the uh, importance of the water only 10 miles out or 200 miles out. It goes uh, as far as the ends of the earth. For the blue water school of space power, we argue that uh, the true value of space and the people that are going to get the most benefit out of space are going to be the people that reach out the farthest. Uh, instead of just worrying about low earth orbit or medium earth orbit or geosynchronous earth orbit with satellites, uh, we argue that we should be doing everything in our power to all, you know, allowing and encouraging our commercial, uh, you know, companies and our civil explorers to go out to the moon, to go out to Mars, to try to figure out how to mine an asteroid, how to develop lunar propellant from the water that's trapped in the poles. Um, the space force, from a blue water perspective, hasn't really even been developed yet, because we're still tinkering on the coastlines in you know hollow canoes that can't travel anywhere. Uh, you know, the Blue Water School is really interested in putting humans in space as quickly as possible and developing true spacecraft that can use different power than, you know, just chemical rocket engines and look at nuclear and solar and all the other things that we can do in space. Because we think the future of the American uh, nation and its economic prosperity, especially, as well as its national security, is in space. And the, and the worry is that other nations think that maybe their future is, is in space, too. And uh, we need to be ready for that. 
Absolutely. Well, that's a wonderful recap of you know giving us that overview, which I think is so important. And and I I completely understand that you know this is really I, mean, I love that word frontier. I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that word up because you know that is we have to be forward looking. We cannot you know certainly in the last several decades as we've you know, as we've developed into a, a greater hegemon, and if you look at even just 30 years ago, the the Berlin Wall fell. I mean, we're still there's still a lot of ground and a lot of places that we haven't discovered yet. What would you think are maybe two or three of the biggest issues that you think could could be improved on or at least resolved so that the Space Force can be that frontier, you know, American innovative. A branch of the U.S. military that we we all want it to succeed and to uh, accomplish all those great things in the future. Uh, sure, there's there's a lot of things that need to be done, but fortunately, it doesn't require a lot of money, and it doesn't require you know a lot of new organization. The organization's already around. What the Space Force has to be able to do is really think of itself as an independent service from the Air Force. And that's not to belittle the Air Force, really, but it comes back to theory. Um, you know, there's a fundamental difference in the way that navies think, like seagoing navies think, from air forces. And that's because air forces are generally uh, not interested in economic development of the air, uh, even though they used to be in the 20s and 30s a great deal. Um, you know, the the air forces now are about securing, uh, you know, um, uh, command of the air, of uh, being able to strike deep into, uh, you know, adversary nations, you know, in times of war, and is really a service that's only really active uh, when there is a fight on, you know, when there is something to bomb, when there is a fighter to go out there. It's it's very much a theater-specific and sort of violent organization. Uh, it's at war or it's not. It sits there in trains which is not a bad thing. That's just what, that's exactly what the army does uh, for the most part. But navies are different. Um, navies have a war fighting mission, but they don't necessarily have a, uh, you know, a, uh, a war fighter centric uh, ethos. They're there to protect civilian traffic. They're there to protect the sea lanes, um, protect commerce. Uh, you know, the odd navies that are called coast guards don't have much of a fighting mission at all. They go out there and put themselves into harm's way to, to protect other people. They get caught in storms. Um, their main enemy is actually the environment itself. Uh, but the problem is, is that uh, under an Air Force view of looking at space, the Space Force can't really expand beyond the thinking of of the Brownwater School, because the Air Force thinks the Space Force is there to provide information to the cockpits, provide information to the warfighters, to make sure that the pilots and other people know where they are through the global positioning system. And they expect space to be episodic, uh, exactly like the Air Forces are, you know, um, and uh, you know, if you're going to have a Space Force officer that's based off of the Air Force ideal uh, archetype, uh, you want a person that can, that can, you know, blow up a satellite with a different satellite, <laughs> you know. Um, and really, uh, it's just, it just so happens that they don't really 
they're not capable of thinking of space beyond the satellite. And it's a very uh, a limited sort of mindset um, because you can't, you know, you're not allowed to think as a Space Force person with an Air Force mindset about, well, what use could be the moon? Uh, what happens if we find, you know, life on some other planet? Is there a military role for that? Well, who knows? But uh, it's it's better for the Space Force to ask a question like that rather than just ignore it completely. Um, but even more specifically, it, uh, it drives the Space Force to work with the Marine Corps, the Navy, and especially the Air Force and the Army um, more than maybe they should work with NASA, which is the other big organization working in the space environment, or private companies. Um, you know, because space power is not really military as much as it is economic. And I will tell you that uh, the SpaceX Starship is the, if it works, will be the biggest breakthrough in space power technology essentially ever, um, but at least in the last 10 or so years. Uh, that could be a game changer beyond anything that we've dreamed of before. Um uh, way more important than anything that the Space Force itself is developing right now. Uh, but if you try to explain that to a current Space Force person that's been raised in the Air Force, 90% of them look at you, you know, odd. Uh, it's like, hey, that's not our job. You know, but, uh, you know, uh, with a, an, a truly independent mindset that the, the Blue Water School can give, which is, hey, look, we're the Space Force. We might be under the Department of the Air Force, and we might have emerged from the United States Air Force, but we are not the same thing, nor are we the junior partner of the Department of the Air Force, which I've heard some Space Force general officers say. Uh, you know, uh, the, the Space Force people need to believe themselves to be the vanguards of the safety and, you know, uh, security and prosperity of the American Republic for the 21st, 22nd, and 23rd centuries until something else overthrows us, which I have no idea what it would be, but, you know, uh, it's important. Um, and, you know, just going to Air Force schools, as much as I love Air Command and Staff College, you know, we do a good job. It's all those other Air Force schools that aren't doing their job, right? <laughs> um, you know, uh, the Space Force people have to think of themselves as space people. And that would be the number one thing that we can do to make sure that the uh, the Space Force really becomes the service America needs it to be. And for that to happen, it has to be allowed to think um, for itself and think about space as its own personal domain, because it is. Um, that might have been a run on uh, quite a bit, but I think that's the most important thing. Uh, you don't need a lot of money. You don't need a lot of uh, new uh, programs, even though those would be fun. What we need to have are Space Force people that think that, hey, anything that happens in space is my responsibility to protect this nation. And I think we're getting close to there, but, uh, you know, it's still um, Big Brother Air Force is still sort of around. And even though we might not have the chief of staff of the Air Force over this U.S. Space Force anymore, the secretary of the Air Force is still our civilian controller. And um, the Secretary of the Air Force has Air Force in his name and not Space Force. Understood. Well, that's that's really interesting because um, I, <clears throat> I I want to reference a couple of articles that you wrote in The Hill, which I think are very, very pertinent. I think uh, I was I was very struck by you know some of the 
really amazing things that you've been able to research on. The first is really about the Space Force Reserve, uh, but also I I found I also really liked your article in the also in the Hill. Uh, you can tell me the Hill guy. I'm, I guess it's partly because I interned on the Hill twice, so you know you, you're you're bound to. It's it's kind of like the Bible of news publications when you're working there. <laughs> but I I also really enjoyed your article about the. Uh, just think of the name for someone who represents the Space Force. Could you elaborate a bit more about you know the importance of the name, which is currently adopted as the Guardians, um, and also uh, this idea of a Space Force Reserve and, and the roles in which they can play um, to really boost the Space Force as that independent thinking frontier reaching part of our society? Well, I, I don't mean to be a a downer, but uh, the Space Force Reserve, um, you know, I argued uh, a lot for in, you know, and I was definitely in favor of um, for the last year or two, essentially ever since the Space Force came out, I figured the, uh, you know, the the space units of the Air Force Reserve and now the units of the active duty Space Force are very well connected on the operational level. Uh, we work with each other all the time. Uh, except for the fact that the active duty are in Space Force uniforms and the reservists are in Air Force uniforms. And the reason that is, is because uh, of a decision in the Department of Defense to uh, have a combined uh, component or a combined service that uh, has, you know, there will be no Space Force Reserve. There is only uh, active duty and part-time members of the active duty Space Force. for the life of me, I do not understand, nor do I agree with whoever's thought behind that. And I've never actually heard a very good excuse for why that uh, that decision was made. Unfortunately, the decision was made, and uh, um, I raised a couple of hackles in in arguing against it. And I think I'm going to be losing this one. Um, so uh, we will have part time guardians in the active duty space force. Uh, I do not think it will be the same thing, and I think that is a is a bad thing for uh, uh, for the nation. Uh, however, the reserve component is still very much an open question. Um, in the National Defense Authorization Act for this year, uh, the uh, the Senate has called for a renaming of the Air Force Reserve into the Air and Space Force Reserve, uh, which, in my opinion, is 100% window dressing. It doesn't do much of of anything to bring a reserve component actually into the space force. Uh, but the house, uh, has, uh, decided that they are going to push for a full fledged space, uh, national guard. Um, and for people that don't know, there's a federal reserve component and a national guard component for the army and the air force. So there's two reserve components, the reserve and then the national guard, uh, and that under the house's rule or, uh, the house's, um, plan, uh, there would also be a, uh, a National Guard component for the, uh, uh, for the Space Force. Um, and I'll tell you, uh, for all your listeners out there, if you are so inclined to write your congressman, write your congressman about making sure that they vote for a full-fledged Space National Guard, uh, because we definitely need a Space Force Reserve component. Why? Because uh, in space, the economic and commercial aspects of space provide more value to the nation 
than the military component. We need to develop our wealth from space. In order to do that, we have to have people that have a foot in both commercial, economic, and military sectors. And how we've done that in the past was by having reserve officers, reserve enlisted people uh, that have, you know, 20-year careers in SpaceX or Boeing or Lockheed or you name it, uh, and also have 20-year careers as part-timers in the um, in the reserve components for their services. Um, and we had initially a lot of people that were that came to me in you know different uh, conferences and stuff saying, "Hey, I want to join the Space Force Reserve. How could I do that?" And I told them, "Well, you can join the Air Force Reserve right now." And these people were in startups, you know, junior uh, engineers and scientists in startups saying, "Hey, how do I join this military part time?" I'm like, "Hey, uh, right now you got to join the Air Force Reserve. Here's how." And they're like, "Well, I'm not really sure I want to do that." And we lost a lot of people, including people from SpaceX, that were interested in becoming uh, Space Force Reserve officers, but we had no Space Force Reserve. Therefore, we lost them. Um, and it still hurts me to this day. It makes me really sad uh, for what we've lost. Uh, but if we don't give people the ability to have dual careers, um, we're not going to have the people that can blend military and commercial economic operations together in ways that would allow us to have a more whole of nation approach to government. Now we'll have part-time officers still in the reserve part-time part of the active duty space force, but uh, it's hard enough to get uh, recognition as a reserve officer when you're working with active duty anyway. At least in the reserve, we would have our own squadrons. So you could be a squadron commander or a director of operations or a flight commander. There were paths to getting promoted uh, that a reserve can give you that uh, um, a part-time uh, community in an active service has never demonstrated. So uh, in my opinion, the, the future of the part-time service, if there is one, is in the Space National Guard and the House has to win this particular one. Um, but again, it's the Space Force Reserve is sort of a raw issue for me right now because I tried to fight it and I fear I've lost. Um, a less, you know, worrisome and really less, uh, you know, this is more of a uh, of a fun thing is how we call our, you know, what we call ourselves. And um, I'm very much of a of a of a domain centric thinker. So I think the uh, the primary, you know. Uh, the primary characteristic of the space force is that we're interested in space. So my preferred, you know, uh, uh, name for, you know, nickname for a space force personnel, uh, I wrote in my first book, uh, was spacer, you know, and, um, you know, because it's, you're in space, it's sort of like airmen only it's, you know, gender neutral. So spacer sounds pretty good. Even though I had a really bad set of, uh, of um, braces when I was a kid. So spacer, you know, those weird things they put in your teeth to separate them. They scare the hell out of me. So if, and I, I apologize for, for the, for the bad language, but uh, you know, if I like spacer, okay. With, even though I'm psychologically scared of that, you know, term, it, it was probably pretty good, but uh, they decided to go with guardian um, because, uh, because honestly there's history. Uh, Air Force Space Command, which the space force emerged from, uh, always called themselves guardians of the high frontier, um, at least as far back as 1982. So, uh, you know, we do have a, um, uh, some history there and guardians is an interesting term because it does not really have an offensive 
you know, uh, conception of itself. It is there to guard uh, people. And I think that is critically necessary for Space Force personnel. We are there to guard people against pirates, against bad guys, against uh, an environment that'll kill you as soon as look at you. Uh, and I think that focus on protection is really, really good uh, for the Space Force to have. Um, because long term, I think Guardians is, it wasn't my first choice, but it was, a, it was, it was okay. <laughs> I think it'll serve its purpose. Absolutely. I <clears throat> I always thought of, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy sort of um, feeling. And so uh, I I also thought that, um, you know, the ideal, if, if I were to bring it to more to like kids level sort of thing, um, I always thought of um, in my life, I think Buzz Lightyear was the first uh, Guardian <laughs> because oh, yeah. kind of, you know, I think you might you might fit very well with the uh, with the Space Force. Who knows? Um, oh, yeah. You know, and and uh, in, in- Guardians of the Galaxy is fun. Um, I'll tell you, I, you know, my, uh, my science fiction of choice is, is Star Trek. It, it shouldn't, for anyone that reads my stuff, it shouldn't be surprising. But, um, you know, they never came up with a good idea. They just called everyone Starfleet officers. And it's like, well, not all of them were officers. So we needed right. a new name and, and I'll go along with Guardians. It's fine. Absolutely. Although I am still an airman uh, because I'm an Air Force Reserve officer still. Oh, gotcha. Um, I, I always also thought Buzz Lightyear's uh, same to infinity and beyond. I think that's just such a fitting, uh, fitting quote for <laughs> the frontiers. And <laughs> um, I guess we'll have to thank Pixar at another time. But anyway, well, they, don't don't get too uh, big on that. They might start asking for royalties. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, brilliant. Uh, I want to now move to a couple quick things, a couple of questions now about uh, really the the national security outlook of space, and because we hear a lot about what China is doing with their technology and what their visions are. Um, I, I am personally very concerned about kind of a bit about how you kind of referenced, um, you know, how other nations might be thinking of space and um, how they fit into the picture. Uh, but can you give us a glimpse of the national security outlook right now as you see it and how the, the Space Force fits in with that general competition uh, against China and to ensure that uh, we we don't, kind of like in the Soviet past, I mean, you did re- a lot of research about this, but you certainly understand it more than I do, um, really making sure we don't allow dictatorships having this kind of power in this domain that we've actually been talking about for years and years. Yeah, it's, you know, it's inherent in every nation to want to be strong enough to defend its interests, to do what it wants to do, to provide the life that it wants to provide for its citizens, and to be able to resist pressure from someone else that might want to try to take that away. Um, But uh, you know, it seems fairly clear now that most everyone agrees that the unipolar moment of, you know, the post-Cold War United States is sort of gone, um, and we're entering a, a, you know, great power competition again, where the U.S. isn't a, a hyperpower or maybe even a superpower, is just another one of the great powers. And in my opinion, that is a very good thing, because if you're a superpower or a hyperpower, how they called it, you know... You can think that you can afford to do sort of, uh, you know, maybe not all that bright things because you figure you can afford it. Um, But in great power competition, you have to be more of a 
you have to plot out your strategies clear and be more, uh, you know, uh, not in a political term, but, you know, in a sense, sort of conservative in that you conserve your power, that you build up your stocks, that you that you take care of your own robust health um, because you need the money and you need the material and you need the the skill to be able to protect yourself uh, in a, you know, in a hostile neighborhood. Um, but the idea of building yourself up, building your economy up, increasing your technology, um, building your lead against anybody, you know, on an economic level, on a technology level is always a good idea. But it's come, it comes to the forefront when you're in great power competition. So now that we have a, you know, um, uh, another competitor, and I would call China a peer competitor, they are not behind us in any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you know, uh, we might be marginally ahead, but, you know, not, that's nothing that we can rely on. Uh, we have to start playing smarter. And playing smarter is uh, really taking the strategic offensive. And that doesn't mean a military offensive. That means we do what America does best, and that is go to the frontier and make money and make families and make new Americans. So I'm a, a little of two minds about uh, about China in space. Um, China, in my opinion, is a huge competitor. They're not an enemy, I don't think. Uh, they could potentially become one, um, but uh, there's no real ideological reason why would have why we would have to be at each other's throats necessarily. And yet we can still compete against them without having to, uh, you know, uh, fight each other. And maybe even without, you know, uh, you know, we might even be able to wish them well. I think a Chinese space program would be awesome. And I would love to give them the second, third and fourth, probably more like the fourth or fifth best real estate in the solar system. You know, provided we had the really good parts, I'm sure they can take whatever's left over. I have no problem with that whatsoever. You know, more power to them. But um you know, uh, we have to realize that we're in great power competition. And what does that mean? We have to make investments that will pay off, that will give our people jobs, that will educate our, you know, our people uh, well and give them lives that allow them to, uh, you know, fulfill their own personal, you know, goals. Um, make sure that uh, our kids have better lives than we did, which is sort of the classic understanding of what the American dream was. And how do we do that? Well, we have this big frontier called space, and we know it has a lot of wealth. We know it has a lot of materials that we can build stuff. It has a lot of water. It has a lot of room. It has a lot of energy. It has pretty much everything that we need. And fortunately, because Americans are good at this, we have the technology and the ability to get out there in big ways and put people on the moon. And we have a businessman that really wants to get a million people to Mars by 2050. You know, uh, 2050 is closer than 1990. Uh, you know, and and that's a hard thing to uh, to say for a person that's uh, that still figuring he's pretty young, but is in his you know almost mid 40s now. Um, but uh, just think about that. You know, uh, I hope to still be around in 2050, and a million people on Mars. Uh, I would hope maybe one of my my kids or grandkids are there. I'm hoping it would be safer, but you know we'll see. Um, but the the thing is that we do that uh, if we focus on space and we focus the space force on protecting those people that are going to go out into space anyway, and maybe give them incentives to get out there, uh, like we developed economies in the past. You know, we uh, we helped 
the Transcontinental Railroad from the government to link the coasts, you know, which was very important to our development. Uh, developing the international uh, or the uh, the interstate highway system was a big deal, and that really increased, uh, you know, the American economic potential. We can do that same thing with space. We can focus on internal development in an external environment that would, you know, not allow a, necessarily keep us, uh, you know. Uh, on a, um, uh, you know, on a, on a tense sort of standoff with, uh, you know, with other adversaries across either the Atlantic or the Pacific, um, but really in a vigorous uh, competition that might lift all boats, provided we don't start fighting each other. Um, you know, I think, uh, uh, but focusing on development is, is far more important. In great power competition, they're already starting to develop, uh, you know, a doctrine in the military for this. Um, we really need to um, focus on, you know, developing our economy and our military at home and reaching out into the frontier, um, you know, taking advantage of our American strengths, um, you know, and then we have to realize that space is going to be uh, maybe not the uh, maybe not just a primary, but the central, uh, you know, uh, theater of great power competition. I personally believe 100 percent that the uh, the superpower of the 21st and 22nd century is going to be born in space through their space activity. Uh, nothing else on Earth is uh, will give us the ability to. Uh, to rapidly uh, develop economies so quickly and develop riches quite as quickly as, as space, uh, as space operations. Um, and that's not just America, that's America and its allies and, you know, um, partnering with uh, like-minded uh, nations across the world is very important. And Hey, we might even be able to cooperate with other, you know, groups like uh, China and Russia on certain things to keep space peaceful. Maybe not, you know, an alliance issue or anything like that. But, uh, you know, there's just a lot of opportunities in space. And we have to realize that from a, you know, a national security and national wealth perspective, space is where America needs to focus. Absolutely. Well, I, I really appreciate, you know, you sharing about, you know, this vision and the, the way that we can move forward. In the last episode where we talked about Space Force, we talked a lot about the bipartisan aspect and how, you know, both sides of the aisle can really revolve around revolve around this idea of a space force. Dr. Zarna, can you just um, give us a sense of how important it is for both sides of the aisle to come together on space and recognize that this issue, like some other issues that we deal with nowadays, like cyber and others, really are really is bigger than the the political differences between Democrats and Republicans alike. I, I love to hear you know your thoughts about how Space Force can play a role in bringing people together and finding ways to grow the nation in ways that we never could have thought before. Well, sure. That's one of the most interesting things about space in a domestic uh, kind of policy is that it's, uh, it's nonpartisan or it's, I guess, bipartisan uh, in, a, in a certain sense, but um, in both parties in both factions, if you want to say that we're split between red and blue um, sort of states, uh, each side has their own interest in space and they overlap quite a bit. Um, partisanship tries to come in every now and then, but usually it's beaten down, which is really a, a, a great thing because uh, as we know, um, 
you know, uh, a lot of people said that the Space Force was President Trump's, you know, uh, boondoggle or, or at least his idea. Well, it wasn't. It was, um, you know, first really studied hard in about uh, 1999 to about 2001. Um, but the modern attempt started in about 2017 through, uh, you know, Congressman Mike Rogers and uh, Congressman Jim Cooper, who are both, um, you know, one is a Republican and one is a Democrat. And it stayed a bipartisan issue. Uh, the Space Force was really a bipartisan issue for all the people that really understood the Space Force for the Space Force's sake. And uh, even through a split, um, uh, you know, uh, government, you know, uh, the uh, the Democrat Democratic Congress and the Republican president, we got the Space Force. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, there were people that were happy on both sides, quite honestly. And then when the new president, uh, President Biden, came in, there was a lot of talk that, well, is he going to scrap the Space Force? And certainly there were some partisans that said this is Trump's idea. This is a horrible idea. And we're thinking about that. But then the cooler heads in, you know, Washington, D.C. prevailed and the Space Force, you know, cutting it or uh, giving it back to the Air Force was never in any, uh, you know, uh, it was never a really serious possibility, at least that I've heard. So um, there are people that are interested in space uh, on both sides of the aisle. And there are people that are excited in space development on both sides of the aisle. And they actually work very, very well together, which is really interesting. Um, you know, it used to be that uh, the partisanship in the United States would end at the coast, right? When we were out there in foreign policy, we were uh, we were together. Well, that really doesn't happen. And maybe you could argue that it never really did happen all that much. But um, uh, we do seem to have a, uh, a good bipartisan appeal uh, for space pretty broadly. Now, there are, part of the reason is that you can do a lot of interesting things with space, including partisan sort of issues. Like for the United, uh, well, you know, the United States in, under President Trump, hey, we had to protect against China. We had to protect against threats from Russia. Um, we have to win back the entrepreneurial spirit and let our, you know, rocket designers do whatever the rocket designers want to do to make sure that America is primary, you know, number one in space again. Uh, you know, we could make America great again in space. Um, well, you can do that with a space force. You can do that with a really, uh, you know, uh, um, forward-leaning uh, uh, U.S. government. Um, well, now under a Democratic, uh, you know, uh, administration, uh, well, how can you do green energy development? How can you maintain um, economic development while at the same time uh, making the planet uh, more green and more healthy, less polluted. Well, space theorists and space enthusiasts since, you know, from the uh, 60s and 70s made that their whole goal in life to try to figure out how to make and keep Earth as a garden spot because it's the only garden spot in the solar system. And for all we know, it's the only one in, you know, our neck of the uh, neck of the galaxy that can support life. We want it to continue to support life. So how can you make a lot of green energy? Well, solar power from space is a pretty good one. <laughs> you know, so space and its development has uh, pet projects that appeal to both sides of the aisle. And I think that's really exciting. And the good news is that the people that love space that are, you know, from the Democrats and from the Republicans understand that and realize that their own partisan um, interests are actually just as protected as, you know, maybe their 
domestic adversaries on the other side. Um, as long as they both have a robust, you know, uh, space program. So uh, I think that makes uh, makes space and Space Force very neat. The other thing is, is that if they're both enthusiastic about it, we can make space a rallying cry for the United States to come back together as a, uh, as a, uh, you know, as a community and as a nation and, uh, you know, spark pride in our accomplishments. Because when we get uh, more astronauts on the moon, you know, um, including the first woman and all that other kind of stuff, that's going to be a big thing. And they're going to have an American flag on their uh uh, on their shoulder. I really do not think the, the Chinese are going to get there first. And uh, hopefully that sparks a new national unity because we're Americans, doggone it. We do space better than everyone else. Hands down. We always have. You know, even the stuff the Chinese have done has either, you know, ripping off our ideas or ripping off Russian technology. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a it's a way to, uh, you know, if we reopen the, the frontier, the American frontier spirit will come back. And it will come back in a bipartisan fashion because we're Americans before we're Democrats or Republicans, no matter what the news people will have you believe. So uh, at least that that's what I think. And I'm pretty hopeful about that. I'm excited for that first bipartisan delegation to Mars. Um, maybe they'll hold a committee hearing there or something. It'll be really, really historic. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, it's a great, it's a great photo opportunity too. But I think it'd be really, really amazing to see like elected officials there and, and some of our leaders there too to really showcase how unifying this this new frontier can be. I, I want to, as we kind of approach the end of our time, Dr. Zarnick, I want to give you a moment to uh, give us an overview, a quick overview, maybe two or three minutes of your, of the books that you've written and, uh, you know, the purpose and uh, what you would like to have people learn from when it comes to this idea of space power theory and really some of that military history uh, that you mentioned earlier. Well, uh, thanks. Um, my books, and I have three of them now, are really my attempt to learn as much about space power theory as possible. I mean, really. Um, uh, my first uh, book, Developing National Power in Space, uh, was written in 2014. And that really is my space power theory, you know, uh, how I look at development and, you know, how the military interacts with uh, with the politics, interacts with the economy. It's based an awful lot on the writings of uh, uh, Admiral Mahan and, uh, you know, a Navy thinker and um, the economic development theories of a man named Joseph Schumpeter. Uh, I, I still think it stands the, the test of time as far as grand strategy goes, so I would highly recommend it. Um, but more recently, my other two books have been on, uh, oddly enough, Air Force history. Um, you know, my second book was called 21st Century Power, which is a collection of uh, um, uh, speeches and articles by a strategic air command general named General Thomas Power, who was, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of dismissed for a long time as an evil, dumber version of Curtis LeMay, um, you know, but, uh, you know, a very violent person, but is actually a very deep thinker uh, in great power competition and how to deal with peer-on-peer -peer competitions and deterrence, which are two huge issues. Um, my last book is actually a biography of, of General Power and really getting into his, um, you know, his unknown uh, um, additions to uh, Air Force space power history that most people just aren't aware of. Um, now, you mentioned our Shriver Scholars uh, 
you know, uh, concentration here at Air Command and Staff College. That's uh, we're named after General Bernard Schreiber, who is considered the air the Air Force's uh, father of the space and missile program. Um, well, I argue that General Power actually had a great operational view of how the Air Force could operate in space. And now I would say he can give us a lot of insight on how we need to operate as a space force uh, to protect um, America as much as possible. So those are really uh, my three books. Um, all my books, I'm probably planning on uh, having them related to the space force in some way. But uh, but that's that's how far I've gotten so far. Wonderful. I'll put those links to the books in the show notes below. Dr. Zarnick, as we wrap up, which of the pillars of Washington's farewell address do you think are most relevant and explain why? Gosh, it, that would be hard because I think space hits all of them. Um, you know, it, because, you know, Washington's uh, farewell address is so central to our character and the frontier is also central to our character. Uh, I think they dovetail very nicely together. Um, just, you know, for, uh, for, you know, fiscal sanity, we are at how many trillions of dollars in uh, debt right now? And a lot of people are worried about that. Well, fortunately, there are trillions of dollars of natural resources in space that we can get. So if you're looking for a way to uh, get uh, get the United States healthier fiscally and, you know, economically and resource related, uh, there's very few places you can go other than space for the kind of uh, economic development you need to um, to, to get our, our fiscal house in order. But really, I would say it's all uh, mostly about unity and about uh, morality, um, uh, you know, and even religion to a certain uh, extent, although that uh, the religious feeling will be expressed by the different phase in the United States differently. But uh, the, you know, the frontier is central to the American character and always has been and probably always will be. And, uh, you know, the way that you bind Americans together is to reinforce what makes them unique. And the frontier is what makes us unique. And the frontier is what makes us united, even though uh, not everyone got into a covered wagon and went down the Oregon Trail to, you know, uh, to settle um, Nebraska and California and Arizona and New Mexico and stuff like that. Uh, even people from the East Coast or, you know, the, the Deep South still identify the cowboy as an American archetype, right? So as we go into space and really um, plant plant our flag and plant our ideals out there, um, even if you don't get to step foot in this space, you're still going to feel, hey, um, Americans are out there colonizing space, leading the charge to make space a human environment. And I'm just excited as heck about seeing that because I think that's going to be the new flowering of American character when we get to print, you know, imprint our ideal you know, and our uh, our ethos on uh, a new environment and lead uh, humanity peacefully uh, out into an area where all of us can benefit. And believe me, all of us already have benefited around the world from space. You know, GPS helps out everybody, you know, and has made everyone richer and a little bit safer. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So um, I really do think everything uh, that, uh, that Washington said, um, can be magnified through the prism, um, and lens of, of space operations. All it takes, China has nothing on the United States as far as space goes, nothing. The only people that can beat America in space is Americans. And once we get out there, there is no stopping us. And I'm pretty convinced of that. So, uh, the, the thing that we have to do is, uh, you know, um, you know, the, Unity, 
and, you know, morality and, you know, getting out there, uh, fulfilling the American character. That's what we have to do. That's what General or President Washington would want us to do. So um, so thanks for bringing that up. I think as a civics thing, you bringing up his uh, his address is uh, extraordinarily important. And hopefully space can help. As we wrap up our episode today, I, I really cannot thank you enough for the amazing answers that you've given uh, about space power theory, about blue water, about the frontiers of American space. And uh, Dr. Zarnig, you know, your research and what you bring to the table and what you have looked at looking at American history and extracting those values and those those lessons um, about American invasion and that and going that extra mile. Uh, it's really extraordinary. And I am very, very grateful to you for today's interview. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored. But, uh, you know, as Americans, we all have to do our part. I'm, uh, I'm just trying to do mine. And I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you think my meager uh, efforts are, uh, you know, worthy of a podcast. So thanks a lot. It'll inspire me to do even better next time. But thank you for all your work, too. Thank you so much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Again, if you have already, make sure to hit that subscribe button. I've got some links below uh, for you all to check out. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens. <laughs>